Hello, everybody. This is Steve Edelman, one of the co-hosts of our TCOID podcast. My other star co-host, Jeremy Pettis, is now on his way to Germany. And we are really privileged to have a good friend and colleague, Leslie Island, who is an endocrinologist, also living with type 1 from Omaha, Nebraska, who flew out to our San Diego studio to do this particular podcast on pregnancy and type 1 diabetes. So my first question to Leslie will be, can you help define what gestational diabetes is uh, and talk about what we're going to focus on during this podcast? Sure. So when it comes to pregnancy, um, there are, you know, probably different categories when it comes to diabetes in pregnancy. There is gestational diabetes, which is diabetes uh, that is diagnosed during pregnancy. And we usually find that out when somebody does their oral glucose tolerance test in their second trimester. There are also women who have had type 2 diabetes already diagnosed prior to pregnancy, um, and they may or may not be on non-insulin medications or insulin for their type 2 diabetes. And then what we're really going to focus on today is people with type 1 diabetes in pregnancy. Right. And would it be fair to say that if you get diabetes during pregnancy, it's mostly of the type 2 diabetes type? It's probably gestational, although I do have a couple patients uh, who were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes during pregnancy, and that was a little tricky. It often wasn't clear what was going on, and they sort of realized it after delivery when the blood sugar stayed high. Okay, perfect. So let's say you're a female with type 1 diabetes, and you, you want to get pregnant. What are some of the things that they should be thinking about? Yeah, so I think it's really helpful to just know what to expect, um, to do your homework, to understand what happens with uh, insulin resistance during pregnancy, and to let your medical team know um, with, with some advanced warning would be nice. You know, I think it's important to talk to your endocrinologist that you're considering starting to try to conceive. Um, and some endocrinologists will manage their patients during pregnancy. Sometimes they send them to one of their partners that, that specializes in diabetes in pregnancy. Sometimes they send them to a high-risk OB doctor that also manages diabetes. It really, really differs from health system to health system. And so I think it's just important to know if and when you get pregnant, who will be managing you during that pregnancy? So I know that um, working with women uh, with type 1 who, who plan pregnancies, you know, they work with a high-risk OB and they get super tight control uh, actually before conception. Because talk about the perinatal morbidity and mortality as well as complications at birth as it relates to glucose control. Yeah, so I think it's, uh, so along those lines, I think it's really important to have a preconception OB visit to review all this goal, all these goals. And like you said, get your blood sugars in as tight of control as possible, even prior to conceiving. We don't want someone to start with an A1C above 10 and get pregnant and then sort of have to rapidly uh, decrease the glucose level significantly. How long before um, conception you want to have a good A1C. Which you want goes to have a good A1C months. prior to conception. Yeah. So I think a few months ahead of time, um, if not, you know, three to six months ahead of time would probably be reasonable. But I would um, say my, in my experience, Leslie, most times the pregnancies aren't planned. And I guess 
the best you can do is once you find out, obviously see someone that can manage you during your gestation and try to get it under good control as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you want to go over the risks? Sure. Of Let's un- do the risks. Uncontrolled blood sugars in pregnancy. So um, when the mother has high glucose levels, the glucose levels cross the placenta um, and the baby develops high glucose levels as well. Um, the insulin... Insulin does not cross the placenta, but the baby has a functioning pancreas, right? And so when it's swimming in this high sugar bath, the baby's pancreas starts making a lot of insulin to to make up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so insulin is a is a growth hormone, right? It's an anabolic hormone, and so that can lead to the baby getting uh, too big, too fast, and way too much. And it can be a disproportionate weight, like their shoulders can get bigger than the rest of their body. And, and that can cause a problem during labor and delivery. There's an increased risk of shoulder dystocia. Um, and then when you have a baby who's just been, um, whose pancreas has just been making a ton of insulin uh, after delivery, that pancreas continues to make a ton of insulin, even though they're no longer in this high sugar bath. And that can lead to serious low blood sugars uh, right after delivery. We call it neonatal hypoglycemia, which needs to be monitored closely and and sometimes treated pretty aggressively. Yeah. And and is it true that although these babies are large for their quote unquote gestational age, they're internally immature and premature, I should say? That's my understanding. Yes. And then they have to live, they have to be in the ICU longer than other babies as well. Correct. So you've been talking about tight control. Give us an idea what the A1C would should be. And also, uh, if they're wearing a CGM, I hope, right. what kind of metrics should we be looking at? Yeah. So we'd like an A1C, you know, less than six if possible with, with minimal hypoglycemia, which is really hard to do without a continuous glucose monitor, in my opinion. Um like we said, it's best if that A1C goal is achieved prior to pregnancy. Uh, if we're looking at kind of finger stick data, we would like fasting glucose levels less than 95. We want one hour post-meal blood sugars less than 140 and two hour post-meal blood sugars less than 120. Uh, if you're using a continuous glucose monitor, that time and range goal is still above 70%, but the goal or the uh, the range shifts and becomes much more narrow. So for people that aren't pregnant, with type 1 diabetes, their range is 70 to 180. For people in pregnancy, that range shifts to 63 to 140. So it's much it's much tighter. Yes. Now, what happens during, let's say, the stages of gestation? There's the first trimester, the second, the third. Unfortunately, it's kind of a, a moving target, right? Because the needs change over time. Absolutely. Um, so, First trimester, even until the end of the first trimester, you may be more uh, insulin sensitive. And sometimes your insulin needs won't increase much. They may even go down a little bit, especially if for women who have trouble with nausea and vomiting during the first trimester of pregnancy, you're at increased risk for hypoglycemia with that. Um, but beyond sort of 16 weeks for most people, that's really when your insulin resistance rises exponentially. And by the end of second, third trimester, you may be needing two to three times the amount of insulin per day compared to your pre-pregnancy needs. Usually by like mid end of third trimester, things level off. Um, but like like you said, you're a moving target and my team usually reviews uh, blood sugar numbers on a you know every one to two weeks, but often on a weekly basis to try to stay on top of it. In general, would you say the duration and severity of 
hyperglycemia dictates the health of the baby? In general, yes, but you're correct. I think I've seen so many exceptions to that. People with, you know, numbers and A1Cs above goal throughout pregnancy that have no complications and people who just work their butt off, you know, all 40 weeks and and do have complications. And so I think there's a lot that we don't understand about this. There's a lot, um, I think, just variation from person to person and we just, we can't predict. Yeah. Now we know that um, having good control is, means you have a lot of percent of your time in range. Right. So how bad is having hypoglycemia and on the other end of the spectrum, hyperglycemia, including diabetic ketoacidosis. So DKA in pregnancy is extremely dangerous. It actually has a pretty high mortality rate. So that's something we want to avoid at all costs. Um, If you have, you know, uh, a two, 300 value on your CGM that you rapidly correct and comes back down and it doesn't happen very often. I think that alone, you know, it happens. I think it's really hard to maintain tight control for, for 40 weeks. And so when it comes to highs, we're really concerned about the just prolonged highs that go on for a long time. With lows, you know, the risk is primarily to to the mother. And I think if you have a lot of hypoglycemia, you start to not feel your lows anymore. And so that can be dangerous from from a safety standpoint. So we always encourage people to make sure their glucagon is up to date and their loved ones know where that glucagon is and and go over uh, CGM alarms and sharing their data, things like that, just to try to keep them as safe as possible. Because it's hard to run this tight for so long and not have hypoglycemia. When CGMs were first coming out, they were super restrictive, the insurance companies. But if a woman was pregnant, they let them have it. What what a godsend that is. Now, what if you had a woman with type one, she gets pregnant, and she wants a pump? What's, what's your approach to someone that has never been on a pump before, and they're already pregnant? So my understanding is that the data is very similar um, in terms of outcomes, whether someone is on shots or a pump. But if somebody is at all thinking about switching to a pump during pregnancy, switching to a pump before they get pregnant is is recommended. I think it's, you know, sometimes it's hard. It, it, the transition from shots to a pump can be a little rocky at times if we don't have a lot of great information. And so it's, we advise to not do that while pregnant and to try to do that earlier. Yeah, you're right. Because people who are not familiar with pumps, they have a higher risk of going into ketoacidosis and that's not a good thing. Let's talk about diet and exercise. I mean, people with diabetes, women with diabetes, I should say, um, you know, ice cream and pickles, lay around, don't overdo it. You know, I gained 10 pounds when my wife was pregnant with our first child. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I did. (laughs) So I think, uh, you know, that's, I I don't recommend the pickles and ice cream on the couch for for 40 weeks. Um, I think as long as you are somebody who is is normally active and has a normal exercise regimen, for the most part, you should be able to continue doing that. Certainly talk to your OB and your your OB team. Um, and there may, you know, if you're doing extreme weightlifting or things that can affect intra-abdominal pressure, that could be an issue. But for the most part, if you're doing a moderate exercise routine, you should be able to continue that during pregnancy. And it's encouraged. We're trying to keep these post-meal blood sugars just you know, so flat. And so walking after meals is huge to help combat those post-meal rises. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, what else do people have to worry about or should know about? Well, the new, you know, I think some people, um, in order to maintain a relatively flat line on their CGM or not have a lot of 
uh, fluctuations, want to eat like super low carb and, and that can be really tricky. So the nutritional, there aren't great guidelines around this in pregnancy, but certainly going to a dietitian and getting some counseling could be helpful because we really want you to avoid calorie restriction. You need to get plenty of calories to help the baby grow. Uh, we want you to still eat carbohydrates. I think it's better if those are spread out throughout the day. Um, and if you can choose like lower glycemic foods or more like complex carbs to prevent those blood sugar spikes, but you still need to eat carbs. And so um, pre-bolusing, like putting in that bolus 15, 20 minutes um, or more sometimes prior to meals can help. And like I said, the walk after meals can help curb that spike. They all, they all sound like... Uh techniques every person with type one should use to absolutely strike the spike and sometimes this is like pregnancy is the ultimate motivator and we hope that you learn these techniques during pregnancy and then continue to use them post-pregnancy i'd imagine there's going to be a schedule of things that uh, a woman with type one who's pregnant should do how often she'd be seen you know maybe some proactive uh communication with their employer ultrasounds i mean you don't have to go through the list in detail because and you know you don't no one needs to memorize those now but i think that's important to know that there there's a lot of things that people should do to not have any surprises at childbirth yeah i think it's really important to work with a multidisciplinary team that that does this a lot right because i think type 1 in pregnancy is very different than type 2 or gestational diabetes in pregnancy and you need a team of people that understands that um, you're going to have a lot of visits so like you said it's important to work with your employer early and let make them aware of that you're going to be sending your blood sugar data to your endocrine team every one to two weeks. Um, and you get quite a few ultrasounds. You usually get one early on. You get a more in-depth anatomy scan halfway through. And towards the end of your third trimester, you're getting very frequent ultrasounds and also very frequent non-stress tests, sometimes once or twice a week. Um, the delivery date that your team sets really depends on a lot depends on how things are going in your pregnancy what your glucose levels are looking like any prior history with prior pregnancies um and, and so they, that's est- something... they estimate how big the fetus is correct yeah i don't think they're super accurate at that but yes they they do estimate based on ultrasound measurements and so sometimes that may depend on you know if they want to induce you closer to 37 weeks or if they'll let you go closer to 39 weeks it it really just depends this is a serious question is there a phone app for women that can put in the numbers and they say, yeah, you're going to deliver on September 6th. And then the, the baby could be born on the same day as me. <laughs> I have no idea. They have apps for everything. They, they do. Okay. okay I'll well, look into it. Okay. Now it's time for labor and delivery. Um, most guys don't know what it feels like to have a baby. And I've heard that it, you can equate it to the pain of a, of a kidney stone. Is that true? I have heard that. Actually, once I had a patient who had a kidney stone while pregnant. So she experienced a kidney stone followed by labor in like pretty quick succession. But she told me the kidney stone was worse. Well, I've heard that's the best way to describe the pain yeah. to a guy. Yeah. Makes sense. How about you? Did you... <laughs> How do you do with your two boys? Uh, you know, actually quite well. I had like a great team of high risk OBs and um, I had a continuous glucose monitor and uh, it was harder probably like mentally, emotionally, just to try to be so vigilant for so long. Um, but ultimately I have two healthy boys and I feel very lucky. That's awesome. So what else, what else should people consider? 
uh, for labor and delivery? What What's important to take away from our talk today? So, I mean, it kind of depends on the hospital system. Some people will let you stay on your insulin pump during labor. Um, that's not what we do in our system. It's not my preference. We tend to want people to run in a very narrow range during labor and delivery so that, you know, we decrease the risk of the baby having hypoglycemia after they're born. So we like to put people on IV insulin. And if you're on IV insulin, unfortunately, you're getting hourly pokes. Um, but that is how best to keep you in a really, really tight range. You can still wear your CGM throughout labor and delivery. Just kind of think of where you're putting it to make sure it's not going to get interfere with any of like the monitoring bands that they're using during labor. The question is, when are we going to use CGM in the hospital environment? And that's because a lot of people think it's crazy to prick your finger when you got a CGM on. It gives you a number every five minutes. I know. I think we've made a lot of advances in that over the last few years, but I think we're still often having to validate that CGM data with, you know, the hospital glucometer. Change is hard. Well, yeah, change is, change is slow, especially with big <laughs> bureaucratic organizations. Well, after delivery, what's different for uh, a woman with type 1 compared to a woman without type 1? Yeah, so people with gestational diabetes, if they need to be on insulin during pregnancy, really can just stop the insulin immediately after delivery. Uh, type 2 is is different, just depending on sort of what sort of treatment you were on prior to pregnancy. Uh, but with type 1 diabetes, you don't want to stop the insulin. You can go into DKA that way. Um, but as soon as the placenta is delivered, that's what makes the hormones that cause your crazy insulin resistance during pregnancy. So as soon as that is delivered, your insulin resistance tanks and you become very insulin sensitive. And often for the first few days or weeks, you may need less insulin than you needed prior to pregnancy. This insulin resistance that you're talking about that goes up during pregnancy, um, I'd imagine that when someone is under really good control, when they conceive, uh, the insulin resistance is minimized compared to someone who has very poor control? That's a good question. Everyone is so different. I don't know that I've been able to predict that. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns, as you said earlier. Well, what other changes happen postpartum? You know, I know that uh, there's a big difference uh, with women who breastfeed versus um, formula feed. How does that affect anything? Yeah, and I think other, if... And other aspects. Yeah, if you're breastfeeding, you know, especially early on, that can lower your insulin resistance even more. And so we worry about hypoglycemia during nursing. Um this is just a time of so many variables. Your diet is inconsistent. Your sleep is extremely disrupted. Um, you may or may not be breastfeeding. Uh, you have a you know new stressors in your life, and so it's it's really common to feel very overwhelmed. I think people, moms without diabetes, feel very overwhelmed at this time. And you throw in still having to manage your diabetes that has changed so rapidly. Um, it's it's a lot. You also you know, used to be sending your blood sugars in weekly to this medical team. And not that, you know, you don't have them anymore, but people aren't asking for your data as frequently. You, they're, you they're lose this, you. You lose this <laughs> team. Like they, they have dumped you after a successful delivery. And so it kind of feels for some people like, like the bottom falls out and they're just left to deal with all of this stuff. And it can be really overwhelming. I think it's normal to feel depressed and anxious during this time. It's normal to have more diabetes-specific distress, and it's normal to feel like you need more support from your family or your healthcare team to manage your diabetes. Yeah, it sounds like women with type 1 who, are, who deliver may have more issues with distress. And like you said, regular diabetes distress. Now, um, 
this postpartum depression that we all hear about, does that happen more in women with diabetes? You know, I haven't seen a statistic around that, but I, I certainly know, I mean, having diabetes postpartum can just negatively affect the transition to motherhood. So I would not be surprised if the statistics were higher. Well, I'm going to go home tonight and thank God that I'm a man. Because <laughs> this sounds really hard. Um, you know, in our last little part of the podcast today, uh, what can you suggest to help people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important just to realize that your type 1 pregnancy is going to be different than your friend's pregnancies that don't have diabetes. And some people really, you know, don't like how medicalized the experience is. Um, and then there's just this big focus on data that you feel just solely responsible for and its effect on your child that can be really um, damaging in some in some ways. Um, it's common to feel just deprived of a normal pregnancy experience, but there's some things that can help. I think if you trust in your healthcare team and feel confident in their abilities and their abilities to manage, you know, many other women with type one diabetes and, and that they've had good outcomes, I think that's trusting that team is really important. Um, sharing your experience with other people with type one diabetes is is important. There are Instagram groups and Facebook groups that can support women in pregnancy with type one. Um, just having active social support with your loved ones and um, feeling like you're just a part of the decision making process. I think can all be helpful. Wow. That that was a lot of really good information. And I would say my very last uh, uh, question to you is, what advice would you give the male spouse of a woman with type one who's pregnant? What, if there were, if the, if the person who's pregnant is not even there, you had all these guys in a room, um, what would you say to them? Uh, to help out and obviously the the obvious ones are yeah be supportive and you're going to say that but um, yeah say anything you like so I think um, that's a good question I don't think anyone's asked me that before I think that's why I'm a podcast <laughs> host co-host so I think just like the normal day to stay day-to-day stuff would be helping with with meals right I think if you're trying to eat low carb but not too low carb and and sort of trying to balance all that sort of you know, working together to prepare meals, going on walks together after meals, I think would be helpful. Um, during labor and delivery, one thing that I um, prepared my husband for was to, uh, I knew I, I wanted to be on IV insulin during labor, but after delivery, I wanted to get off that IV insulin as soon as possible, just to not be attached to an IV and a pole and not have fingerly, uh, uh, hourly finger sticks. Um, and so, just depend, you know, in, in case I was not equipped to get my pump out and change my pump settings and, and fill a cartridge, I made him uh, do a couple pump site changes for me and fill a cartridge with the insulin and um, just so I would know that he'd be capable of doing that um, just to help me get back on my pump um, right a, during that time. What about probably one of the most difficult thing would be to understand first and then deal with the swings in emotions uh, from your loved one who's pregnant. And you have, to, I think you have to have some level of understanding and empathy that, you know, your, your partner may have mood swings. Oh, absolutely. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yes. Um, 
another thing I found very helpful was that he would always make sure I had carbs when I was like sitting in a recliner nursing my infants. And because you, you can go low frequently. And sometimes I would sit down and just realize that I did not have anything next to me. And so he would always bring me usually a giant tub of Costco animal crackers. Um, I was going to ask great. you what, what your go-to. It was, it was a, I've ju- seen those it was a tub plastic, of Costco animal crackers. Yeah. That's great. Those. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that um, we've covered a lot of ground. And I think, you know, for me, um, I learned a lot, even though I deal with women who are pregnant, but they they get shot off to the high-risk OB. A lot of women don't have that. Um, right. I just think it's important to have a level of awareness that uh, your loved one who's pregnant that you knocked up is going <laughs> to need lots of support. And it's going to go through mood changes. And because they have type 1, there's supply issues, there's hypo issues. And I think just being the best partner you can and always being available is is my advice. Absolutely. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Okay.